going to jump right into things. If you have a Bible, if you'd take it and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. How many of you have ever had a conversation with someone where your eyes were looking into their eyes and your ears were hearing the words out of their mouths, but your brain had absolutely no idea what they were talking about? Uh, been there. Um, sometimes it's when my wife talks about Hallmark movies. Uh, when she starts talking about that, I start wondering what kind of ice cream we have in the freezer. Uh, this is where my mind drifts. But this past week, I had the opportunity to speak uh, at the orientation for our Mount Carmel Christian Academy teachers. And, and while I was sitting there waiting, my mind drifted back. I spent uh, seven and a half years serving as a, as a teacher, and my mind went to all those orientations that I sat through. And, and those orientations played a very important role. Uh, yet, yes, they did give me some instruction, and yes, they did give me some inspiration, but I think the biggest lesson that I learned in teachers' orientations through the years was, man, these chairs get hard, and this is boring, and they're just going on and on and on, you know, and, and I've re- that's important because as a teacher, sometimes it's, it's very important to remember the feelings of those who are listening and out there that you're supposed to be teaching. I, I have the uh, occasion to sit in a Sunday morning service, sometimes here, sometimes at other churches, and uh, it reminds me as a pastor, like, what people sitting out in the crowd are thinking. M- most of you are thinking, dude, it's really late. Like, he's starting late. That took a long time. How long is this guy going to preach? And uh, like, in my mind, I'm like, I'm excited about sharing this, but a lot of people are like, okay, we get it. Go on. And sometimes you listen to people who just go on and on and on and on. Thankfully, you've never had to experience that, uh, right? Right? Okay. <laughs> I say all that because as we highlight teachers today, most of us know that the greatest teachers are not always the smartest teachers. The greatest teachers are those who can take a truth from their world and bring it into the world of those who are listening and into the world of their students and The great teachers, they show up to do more than just transfer knowledge. They're there to transform lives. I had a teacher in college, probably one of the smartest people I ever knew. He wrote two very thick books. He was an incredible student of the Bible. But I'll tell you this, there are sometimes I'd leave a 60-minute class thinking like, I'm not taking anything with me. The man was, was brilliant. But sometimes teaching what you know is not always easy and then there's there's other times where my office sits right across the first grade classroom here at mount carmel where miss palmer is teaching first graders and i pause and put my pen down or i stop typing on my computer because i just want to listen to how this lady is taking truth and delivering it to the ears and the hearts of first graders to walk out of a a college classroom with nothing and i could listen to a first grade grade classroom and glean greatly Teachers that want to transform lives are the great teachers. And I guess that's why it's very easy to say that Jesus Christ is the greatest teacher to ever grace this earth. Because Jesus didn't simply desire to just teach. He wanted to transform. 
whether you're a teacher or a parent or whatever, successful teaching requires to have a depth of knowledge and it requires a humble spirit and it requires a, a love for others because you, you can't be a good teacher if you don't know what you're teaching or if you're not willing to enter into someone else's world and if you don't have a love for them because most of the time people don't really get what you're saying the first time. So you have to repeat yourself. How many times did Jesus have to talk to his disciples over and over and over? But you can be a great teacher and yet if your students hearts are unreceptive they're not going to learn either and successful learning requires an open mind and a, a receptive spirit and a and a belief in the one who is teaching because there are there's some teachers this year who will stand before their students and try to try to impact their lives but those who are sitting in the in the seats are going to think well what you have to say isn't that important or it's not not relevant to me or or I already know what you're saying. Those kind of students, we call them teenagers. <laughs> right? There, how many of you parents have tried to have a meaningful conversation with your teenager and they gave you the eye roll and I know. Oh, look at it. All right, we got, we got this. It wasn't really meant to be a testimony time, but uh, we'll, talk, we'll talk later, Jenna. All right? <laughs> but teaching is more than a transfer of knowledge. It's a transformation of life. Jesus, 90 times in the New Testament, was addressed. Most of us, we might think he was, he was addressed as Lord or maybe Savior or, or some name, Messiah, that we know him. But 60 of the 90 times Jesus was addressed in the New Testament, he was addressed as teacher or rabbi. And here's the amazing thing about Jesus. He didn't simply possess wisdom as a teacher Jesus was wisdom. So in John chapter 14, Jesus is going to make this statement to his disciples. I am the way. What does he say next? The truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus declares himself to be the truth. But then when the Apostle Paul pens his very first letter to the church at Corinth, he actually talks of Jesus as wisdom two times. In verse, if you have your Bibles open in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 24. The Apostle Paul says this, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then just a bit later in verse number 30, Paul will pen these words, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Paul calls the person of jesus wisdom now if you're familiar with your bibles you know that there's one other author who who also personifies wisdom meaning he makes it into a person as he talks about wisdom and that's solomon in the book of proverbs as he's writing to his son he talks about wisdom as a person as as one who walks the streets who calls out among the streets who stands at the gates very interesting when Solomon personifies wisdom, I don't necessarily know that he is understanding he's writing about the Son of God who is the wisdom of God. But I want to take you, you don't need to turn there, but I want to take you through a couple of passages in Proverbs chapter number 8 where wisdom is personified. And I would love to encourage you, maybe go home this week and read some of the Proverbs with a little bit of a different angle. As Solomon personifies wisdom, let me ask you, what person do you think he might be talking about? Proverbs 8. 
All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. I love those who love me. And those who seek me diligently find me. Verse 20 of Proverbs 8, still the same chapter. I walk in the way of righteousness in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. Or verse 27, speaking of God here, the he, when he, God, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. Or, or verse 35 and 36. Proverbs 8, for whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. Whew. Puts a different slant on the book of Proverbs when we, when we approach the book knowing that Yes, in the Gospels, we get to read what Jesus did. But if we could return to the book of Proverbs, knowing Jesus' wisdom, we see why Jesus lived the way that he did, because he is wisdom. But wisdom is more than being smart or having the knowledge to win a trivia game. If we want to understand perfect wisdom, we simply glimpse at who Jesus is, because Jesus is perfect wisdom. But what do we see when we look at Jesus? We see well, a perfect life, and we see a cross, and we see a resurrection, and we, we hear of the promise of the Holy Spirit being given to those who believe. Well, I'm going to be honest with you. If we look to Jesus as perfect wisdom, we're going to encounter a problem. Because if you're still in 1 Corinthians, would you look back at verse 18? 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is folly. To those who are perishing. To us who are being saved is the power of God. The, the word of the cross is foolish. I thought he was wisdom. In verse 23, Paul speaking, but we preach Christ crucified. Wisdom? No. A stumbling block to Jews. And folly or foolishness to Gentiles. The wisdom of God is at odds with the wisdom of the world. Think, think of how to answer these questions. How can I be great? Well, what does the wisdom of the world say? Well, well work hard and sacrifice at all costs, and when necessary, push people, out of the side, uh, push people aside so you can get where you want to go. The wisdom of God on how to be great, Jesus himself says, if you want to be the greatest, become the servant. Well, that's, that's down. I want to go up. Or what do I do when people oppose me? Well, the world says, well, conquer and defeat and, and overcome anyone in your way. And what did Jesus do with his opposition? Love your enemies. Pray for them. And do good to those who mistreat you. 
Those wisdoms don't go together. How do I truly find life? How can I finally live? And the world says, just seek your heart's desire. Look, look deep within yourself and do whatever feels good. Just live out your dream. That's real living. And Jesus says, if, if you want life, you've got to lay your life down. The only way to receive eternal life is to die to self. How foolish in comparison to the wisdom of the world. You've got to think about what we're doing. As, as followers of Jesus Christ, we, we are following someone whose greatest conquest was surrendering his life and death. He, he didn't even fight back. He just laid down. That's who we follow. That sure doesn't sound very wise. And I mean, we even baptize people and we say, and we baptize you because you are dying. You are surrendering to self. So here, and then let's picture what you're doing. You're going to live and you are going to continue to surrender self every day. And you're going to live so someone else can live in you. And you're going to live for another's pleasures. And the desires of your heart are to fulfill the desires of your God. Wisdom of God, the wisdom of the world don't, don't go together. And Satan loves that. Because Satan's message from the Garden of Eden is the wisdom of God is foolish. You are wise enough on your own to make your own decisions. You can be wise apart from God. But if Jesus is wisdom, we cannot be wise apart from God. But Satan continues to bring to our thoughts, I don't need God. I'm wise enough to be my own God. From the very beginning, the very opening words of Scripture, in the beginning God, and what does Satan say? There is no God. You can be your own God. You're wise enough to make your own choices. In the beginning, God created. Oh, there, there, what does Satan say? There's no creator. You could choose your own purpose in life. You're wise enough on your own to figure out why you exist. And as Genesis 1.27 talks about man being made in the image of God and male and female, both chosen and designed to display the very good image of God. But Satan says, there's no good design. It's an evolutionary process of chance. God didn't perfectly form you. And if you don't like who you are, you're smart enough. Just change it. You can be wise on your own. You may say, well, I'm too smart to be deceived by Satan. And that would probably be a good indication you have been deceived by Satan. Because we constantly need to be on guard of this deception. If, if Adam and Eve were deceived in a perfect environment, <laughs> we're in a very sinful environment. It'd be a lot easier for us to fall for that deception. I mean, Genesis, chapters, Genesis chapter 3 Satan comes to, to Eve in this beautiful garden and immediately conflicts what God has already said. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. That immediately goes against what God has already declared. But then he goes on and he continues to speak to Eve the way he still loves to speak to us. God knows that when you eat of that fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And Satan's thing is, 
God doesn't want you to be like him. But you can be. You can be a God. He's holding out on you. He can't be trusted. And a God who can't be trusted can't be good. And Adam fell for the lie. And if you read the Old Testament, you won't go a few more pages, you won't go a few pages in the Old Testament without finding someone else who fell for that same lie. I can be my own God. I'm wise enough to make it on my own. So what does God do with that? He's got a world full of men who say, I don't need you. But God, he not only has truth, he is the truth. How does he communicate that truth to man? I recently finished a book where a lady talked about she was an atheist and she turned Christian and she was writing about the impact ants made on her transition to Christianity. Ants. She said she would sit it sometimes outside and would, would put a leaf or a stick over an anthill and kind of make, make them have to go around that. And sometimes she'd swipe aside the anthill and watch them rebuild it and she said, sometimes I'd put sticks and stones as they were moving. And, and she said, I, I, in my mind, I was like, I can be their God. I can make them do things. She said once she looked down and after playing with the anthill, she had two ants on her hand. And she said she pulled it up close to her and she's like, I started talking to the ants. Like, you, you have no idea I'm here, dude. You're not even listening to me and I'm speaking to you. And I, I'm telling you that I can flick you if I want to. I'm your God. And then in her mind, she thought, how can, I, how can I communicate with an ant? I guess the only way to communicate with an ant is to uh, become an ant. She said in that moment, she remembered a Christian friend who said, God is trying to communicate with you. God wants to speak to you, and he desires so badly to know you that God actually became a man she said that so that thought so intrigued her she ran to the gospels and she began to read about the person of jesus and she said it was so amazing to me as i read not only did god possess wisdom not only was he wisdom but he came to me as one of my own to declare that wisdom to me and through that process this atheist turned and gave her life to Jesus and became a Christian. Isn't that amazing? It wasn't just that God was smart to her. It wasn't just that God was wise. It was the fact that God chose to come to her as someone like her. And that's what Philippians chapter 2 tells us, that having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Wisdom came as a man to teach wisdom. And what was the greatest teaching Jesus Christ ever delivered? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Many didn't listen to him, and I'm not going to read it, but many didn't listen to him. As John chapter 1 says, he came into his own, and his own received him not. Meaning there are some who will receive, and there are some who will reject. And I, in closing, I just want to take you to the one little passage in the Gospels. It's probably one of my favorites of 
of Jesus where you see the reception of some and the rejection of others of the one who was true wisdom. I'll read from Luke chapter number six. I'll have it behind me. You're welcome to turn there if you want to, but just just a few verses from Luke chapter number six of Jesus's reception as the wisdom or rejection of wisdom. Luke six, verse number six. The Bible says this. On a Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at all of them, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. In these couple of verses, you have Jesus Christ teaching. The synagogue has many people in there, some who are there to listen, most who are not there. They're there to observe him and to trap him, either in his words or in his works. And we have this great teacher who possesses truth and wisdom, and he calls this man to stand in the middle. He's got a withered hand, and he, he simply says, stretch forth your hand, and, and he heals him on the Sabbath day, and it causes the Pharisees to get so upset. This man who held truth was so upset because they didn't want him. They didn't need what he had. The verse ends with they discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. And if you read the parallel passage in the book of Matthew, it says that they discussed how they might try to kill him. Such rejection. Because they didn't believe Jesus possessed anything of value to them. You know, there's many people alive who reject the teachings of Jesus because they don't think they need them either. Or they don't believe Jesus truly was the Son of God and I can live a good life and I could save myself. I don't need. But John chapter 3, verse 18 says this you're condemned already if you don't believe. You do need, everyone needs a savior. We can't miss this guy with the withered hand. You remember what Jesus said to him? Stretch out your hand. I believe this guy represents all of us in, in, in some way, like. How many hands did this guy have? He had two hands. But it appears only one is withered. So now here's what he's faced with. Do I hide my withered hand and stretch out my good hand to say everything is good? I'm fine. No, no worries. What, what, what do you need? And not receive any healing? Or does he humbly say, yes, I, I, I have a fault and I have a failure I'll put it on display because, because the one who asked him to show it is the one who can bring healing to it. And as Jesus said, stretch forth his hand, this, this man took that withered hand and he stretched it forth and, and Christ began to bring healing to him because he was not going to reject true wisdom. True wisdom is this. You're weak, but I'm strong. Sorry, you're weak, but he's strong. I'm weak, but he's strong. That's true wisdom. And today I feel like so many of us have this opportunity to, to hide our failures, 
show to everybody that, oh, now everything's great, everything's wonderful. How many times do we say, when someone asks, how are we doing, we say, fine. When that's the farthest thing from the truth. Because we want to hide behind the fact that I'm okay. Jesus wants to bring healing. Satan's whispering in ears already. You don't need God. You could be your own God. You could be wise apart from God. You don't need anyone. It's foolish to trust in Jesus. Jesus is weak. And you know, through the eyes of humanity, Jesus is weak. He didn't fight back. He died. And he looked weak for three days. But after three days, death could not keep him. And the grave could not hold him. And he came back in glorious power, the same glorious power he offers to anyone who admits their weakness. So you have a choice to live in your own strength this year or to admit your weakness and ask for his healing grace. It's all about Jesus. Admit you're foolish because he is wise. Admit your weakness because he is strong. Let's admit we're nothing and find out he is everything. So know the truth for yourself, church. Humbly and lovingly take that truth to someone else's world. Humbly and lovingly take that truth to someone else's world and ask, pray that God would open the hearts and minds so that others would believe the truth the wisdom of God. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for being the true wisdom. Thank you for not just simply sitting as some polytheistic gods might be described as sitting at the top of a mountain waiting for mankind to reach you. Lord, you knew that we could never reach you. In your holiness and in your perfection, God, you came to us to make us holy and perfect if we simply admit we're not. And church family, with your heads bowed and eyes closed, I realize there may be some here today and, and, and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ because you, you've attempted to be your own savior, savior for so long. May I encourage you today, admit your weakness Admit your own failures and turn to Jesus. If you're here today and you have done that in the past and you've, you've, you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus, may I encourage you, start again today. Not for salvation, but for sanctification so that you can become more and more like Jesus as you turn to him to say, yes, I have a withered hand and I'm not going to hide it. I'm going to bring it to you because you desire to bring healing to me. God, you know the condition of the hearts of the people who are here today. And you know there's broken hearts. You know there's parents whose hearts are hurting. You know there's struggling hearts. There's people who are facing difficulties that no one else in this room has any idea. You know that there's some who are scared of what the future holds. 
God, may we simply hold up that weakness of ours to you to say, here's what it is. So that your healing touch, your grace comes in, and we find that the only way we can truly be wise is with Jesus, who is true would you grace upon our families, the teachers, the students, everyone who's a part of our school systems. God, may you be in the forefront of all that we do for your honor and for your glory. In your precious and in your holy name we pray. Amen and amen. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I would love to have the opportunity to share that with you you leave today. I'll be at the back doors just shaking hands and greeting people as they leave. I'd uh, love to have that conversation with you.